When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Everybody and welcome back to the Midnight Myth Podcast, everyone's favorite history, philosophy, pop culture, you name it, everything in the kitchen sink podcast. Really stoked to be here for another week. Yeah. And uh, so this week, we decided that uh, The Handmaid's Tale, one of the smash hit series on Hulu, is back for season two. And we've been watching it as is everyone. I think they've had like four or five episodes already. And we started really reflecting backwards about Handmaid's Tale and about the Handmaid's Tale sort of world-building universe that they're creating. And we started digging deep into that. And I thought, and Laurel uh, thought, Laurel and I thought together, I We both say. thought. We, we thought, mind-melded. We mind-melded and We thought. have a psychic link, and we thought at the exact same time. And then we looked at each other and said, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Of and, course we were. And we said, let's go eat popcorn. Yeah, and then do a Handmaid's Tale episode. So right. we really loved our Handmaid's Tale episode last year, I think around this time that we did it. And we figured it was high time that we examine and give the Midnight Myth eye, the Midnight Myth treatment back to the Handmaid's Tale. And we're really excited. We want to kind of discuss this universe that Margaret Atwood built in the book and then has been adapted in the show. Yeah. And ask some like fundamental questions like, why Gilead? Why is it called Gilead? You know, where does this whole handmade thing come from? You know, why did they, why did the people who made Gilead, the characters that is, why did they make their society structured in this particular way? And uh, excited to talk about it. Yeah. One of the things that I'm really interested in, because the last time we did an episode on The Handmaid's Tale, it was very much about uh, contextualizing that story within the dystopia genre. Um, and as we know, season one of that show adhered pretty closely to the book by Margaret Atwood, uh, while it took some really wonderful uh, little detours into showing us the inside uh, of, of many other characters than of Fred. It very much was the same story that Margaret told. 
And season two has opened up a whole new world for us to explore and given us new avenues to uh, kind of understand and and judge and and fight against this world that Atwood created. So I'm very interested in this episode uh, where we're going to talk about The Handmaid's Tale to explore those new avenues that have been laid out to us and to pinpoint some of the things that maybe we didn't pick up when we were watching a show that adhered very closely to its source material. Sure, and it goes without saying we're going to spoil things, so Spoil Wall is up if you're not up to date on Handmaid's Tale. This is no holds barred, no topic banned. We're going to talk about anything and everything, so catch up with The Handmaid's Tale. And just a personal recommendation, friends, if you haven't picked up Hulu and started watching The Handmaid's Tale, and you are a Midnight Myth listener, you're doing it wrong. But I will say this. Catch up with The Handmaid's Tale. It is the best thing that was on TV last year, and it's one of the best things that's on TV right now, if not the best. But please take your time and take care of yourself, because especially this season has been pretty brutal. Um, I I can't speak for everybody who watches it, but as a woman especially, it's pretty difficult uh, to get through some of the things that happen to these characters. So uh, without further ado, if you can stomach more talk about The Handmaid's Tale, as brutal as it is, I think we're going to get into some interesting things tonight. Great. Well, before we begin then, if people want to reach us, how do, how do you want them to uh, reach us, Laurel? We are all over social media. So if you want to hit us up on Twitter, we're at The Midnight Myth. Uh, and we're on Facebook, and we're also on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Drop us a line anywhere, and we would love to hear from you, and we'll totally get into a nerdy debate over whatever you want to talk about. Uh, and if you haven't yet, go over to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe. And if you have the time, leave us a rating or a review. We love the feedback, and we love to get out there to new audiences. One of the most interesting revelations that I had, and I use that word intentionally. It's a very biblical word. Um I believe the character June or, you know, of Fred is a Christian. Yeah. And I think there are two pieces of textual references for this. The first is in season three, one of my favorite scenes. Uh, her fellow handmaid has just been discovered as what they call a, a gender traitor. Just mm-hmm. turns this out. This is season one, episode three. Season sorry. one, episode yeah. three. Yeah. Turns out that she is just a homosexual and they're interrogating um, June of Fred about it. And um, Aunt Lydia, you know, holding a cattle prod to June's face, looks at her and goes, remember your scripture. Remember, blessed are the meek. And this sort of like evoking that perversely because she's in a position of authority. She's holding a weapon to someone's face and telling them, remember the scripture. And then June quotes Matthew 5, verse 10, and, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on the quote. She says, blessed are those who are persecuted in the cause of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then she says afterwards, I remember. And, And instantly, Aunt Lydia's response is violence. She slaps her across the face with the cattle prod and then starts electrocuting her, you know, you know, profanely and and obnoxiously. And they believe at that moment that June is pregnant. And then Mrs. Waterford comes in and breaks up this whole exchange. And that was the first time that I'm like, okay, this character knows her Bible. Right. You know, and this was, you know, a Bible verse that clearly is not a verse 
that Aunt Lydia, who's supposed to be her spiritual guide on her journey as a handmaid's tale, is comfortable with her repeating. That's the piece of evidence one where I'm like, okay, so she knows some of the scriptures handmaids aren't supposed to know. Um, I think it would be interesting to talk about why Lydia had that reaction to that particular verse. But my other piece of textual evidence is then in season two, episode two, when she is, you know, trying to get smuggled out of Gilead into Canada and is in the Boston Tribune. She is sitting there and builds a shrine to all of the deaths and all of the murders and all of the torturing that the, the Gilead has wrought. And she says a prayer asking Jesus to watch over all of these souls. And it really started the process of understanding the various depictions of religion that are happening from those in power in Gilead versus June, who is in effect powerless. Yeah. So this was something uh, that really started to perk my ears up in uh, the second example that you gave in season two, episode two, um, because for some reason I was able to just accept that she knew a piece of Matthew by heart. But then when she invoked the name of Jesus Christ in season two, when she is asking him and his angels to watch over those who, uh, those who died at the Boston globe, uh, it really stuck with me, and I was amazed that after everything she she's been through, she's able to speak the name of Jesus Christ with grace and with um, with prayer, and that got me kind of you know trundling down this road because it's not a piece that was really part of uh, the novel, which I read a couple of times, um, at least not in a significant way that June is a Christian or a practicing Christian. And it's not something that has been explicitly stated in the show. Um, But at this point, I think we are getting a suggestion that this character has a connection to Christ, which is a really interesting way in to understand Gilead. Um, It sort of blows open their whole charade, which is that everything that they do is based on some semblance of scriptural precedent from the Bible. But it is by and large completely Old Testament. And so we've created in the show uh, a really stark dichotomy between Old Testament values, Old Testament punishments, Old Testament scripture, and New Testament uh, values. So it's going to be interesting to track where things go this season with that, uh, that in mind knowing that a character who is imprisoned in a theocracy that is uh, supposedly Judeo-Christian based is still identifying with a Judeo-Christian figure. Well, I think we can learn a few things about Gilead by virtue of absence. So some, some things are absent in Gilead, um, you know, other than freedom and democracy, right. You know, but, and, uh, you know, due process, but in terms of understanding Gilead the theocracy, what is its religious core? How does it justify its actions through scripture? Things that are missing. The first time we hear Jesus's name is in June. Yeah. In the entire series. And, you know, I don't believe I'm wrong about that. I haven't rewatched every single episode, but that's the first time we hear the name Jesus. So that's a clear evoking of the New Testament 
and a prayer for mercy on the victims of Gilead. Yeah. Used as a repudiation of Gilead and Gilead's, um, you know, militaristic, autocratic, and theocratic style. Other things that are missing, we never see a church, right? We never see them go to church, except for that one point in season two where she's hiding um, in, um, what's his name's apartment? Yeah, and the family that takes her in goes to church. We never see a crucifix, right? We never see, um, you know, other than the blessed is the meek, we never see references really to the New Testament. And the blessed is the meek that I referenced that Aunt Lydia says in season one, episode three, is really a perverse and backwards and intimidating um, reference to the scripture. It's a it's a picky choosy like, oh, I can pull this out because this has something to do with the scripture that this is based on just to keep this woman in her place because it's an easy aphorism that everybody would remember. Yeah, it's, hey, I'm threatening the fuck out of you. I'm going to torture you. And remember, it's because of God. Yeah. You know, and you're blessed because of, of my torturing. So, which is not at all in the spirit of blessed are the meek, you know? Not like it's at just, all, no. Yeah, it's totally just, you know, manipulating it for your own ends. Um, you know, which leads me to think, like, how the fuck can you justify sex slaves? Right, how did we get here? You know? Um, and, and in this, a theocracy. Right, and this goes back to one particular biblical story from Genesis, and this is the story of Rachel and Leah, now, if you've seen uh, the flashbacks in the show or if you've read the book and you remember the Red Center, the full name of the Red Center, which is sort of the indoctrination space where the handmaids go to uh, learn about what their position is going to be, what their duty is to the commander, what their duty is to his wife, and what the ceremony is. The Red Center is actually the Rachel and Leah Center. Uh, the entire... The entire buoy of Gilead, this is all based on uh, a, a dystopia around environmental catastrophe. Chemicals in the water have led to women becoming infertile, and therefore we need to come up with a way to perpetuate the human race. So this small group of semi-powerful people stage a coup, take out Congress, take out the president, and create this new, uh, this new code of laws based in a story from Genesis that helps them to continue making babies. This story uh, takes, bla- t- takes place back when uh, polygamy was totally fine and men could have as many wives as they want. Uh, and Jacob was married to these two women, Rachel and Leah. Now, Rachel uh, was unable to give children to Jacob Uh, And so she was really pissed off that she couldn't have babies. She was infertile, even though Leah was able to have as many kids as she wanted. So what she did was offer up her handmaid uh, as a a placeholder, as a substitute for her in the bedroom so that she could sort of uh, analogously uh, give children to Jacob. So that becomes the precedent for this ceremony where the wife and the handmaid become one, symbolically become one, and clasp hands while the man stands over and rapes the handmaid while keeping eye contact with his wife. So it's all based in this pretty twisted Old Testament ceremony. 
to build in this mythology and this, uh, this powerful precedent that says this is totally okay because they did it in Genesis to help us continue procreating but keeping the power of procreation in the hands of powerful people. Yeah, and based upon that, we get the handmaids. You know, a few things I think worth kind of backing up and fleshing out because ancient history, I know I've mentioned that I like history and everyone knows Do you like history? Yes. Ancient history is my wheelhouse. So we can understand the era and time where apparently Jacob lived. This is in a pastoral society, Mm -hmm. the ancient Hebrews. So they kept most, their, their central currency were animals This was a society that was most likely pre-literate or very low levels of literacy. And this was the, uh, a society in which was 100% patriarchal. So it was centered around the man and slavery was common. The idea of an individual and an individual having rights didn't even exist. People weren't individuals. You were the family and the clan that you were. You were your status, you know, and in that place, in that time, we have a very different version of what a family is and even what a human is, you know. And so in that ancient world context, the person that is at the center and running and managing the family unit, e.g. the man, gets the right to say and do whatever they want. And everyone else's job is to be subservient which is why Rachel offers up her handmaiden. Yeah. Because if she can't give uh, you know her husband, you know, children, she is failing on her job as a woman. Hence she needs to find a way, so she offers up the handmaiden. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is interesting that this is all part of a compilation of texts that are all part of what is considered the Old Testament uh, of the Bible that presents us with a really, um, a really terrifying image of God, right? So it presents us with an all-powerful being who is in charge of our destiny and in charge of what happens to us and the earth and the cosmos that we have zero control over, that is impersonal, and that we cannot connect to. And that is a very stark difference from what we are given in the New Testament in terms of a personal God who is ours to uh, have a relationship with. And it's really interesting to see uh, the kind of world that can be built out of a, a, a society that believes their God is impersonal and is, is someone who will punish them, and a society that's built from uh, those who believe that their God is personal and will forgive them. Well, you know, I mean, that's interesting that you say that. There's a few, my thought, my brain is going in a few different directions simultaneously. Take it wherever you want. Um, So I don't think it's, at least from a historical perspective, valid or even useful, I should say, to say one way of looking at religion or one type of society is better than another. Absolutely not, right. and, And adding a value judgment looking backwards, meaning, you know, but the things that we can say is that, well, one, ancient, um, the ancient Hebrew religion was not monotheistic, um, though it do- does become a monotheistic yeah, religion. Yeah, sure. But the most ancient roots of it, it wasn't. Um, 
Otherwise, why have a commandment that says thou shalt have no other gods other than me? Right. You only have that commandment if there are other gods. And the ancient Hebrew religion is about a covenant with one God to lead the ancient Hebrew to their own country, e.g. the land of milk and honey, Israel. Yes. You know, the an ancient version of God, very different than the current modern version, it, it's about trying to understand and contextualize the anxieties around the, the natural world. Phenomenon happen, and there aren't mechanisms to really understand um, that phenomenon and hence predict them. Meaning like, if you don't know really how weather patterns work, if there's no system of knowledge about weather patterns, but your livelihood is connected to weather patterns, that's going to create a source of anxiety. That anxiety can weather and can deteriorate the society. Hence, there needs to be a structure to deal with it. And that dealing with it is, in many ancient cultures, is to develop a religion by which you sacrifice to a more angry deity. Yes. And even if you are a devoted follower of this religion, we can look at Job. If you're Job and you do everything you can to sacrifice properly and to follow and to be pious, you can still have everything taken away from you, but you are sort of absolved of this existential dread of why do good things happen to, or why do bad things happen to good people by accepting the idea that your God has the power to do whatever he may do. And he might test you, but we have to accept that. And in a world where your natural forces and your cosmic forces are uh, incomprehensible to the extent that we have, have figured them out today, that might be the most comforting thing that you can find. Sure. And then flash forward to the Roman world yeah, in which where the, the New Testament and Jesus comes, the idea of an individual is starting to take shape. The idea of a unit, an individual as a unit in society that contributes to society starts to matter more. This emanates from Greece, and this emanates from Greece' understanding of both politics and philosophy. It's important to note that ancient Greek philosophy was very much about understanding and predicting natural phenomenons as a repudiation away from sacrificing to deities, you know, and... From that outgrowth and from the idea of an individual comes a religion that focuses on the individual. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and I think to say like, you know, a lot of the structures around ancient Christianity then formed into medieval Christianity created some of the most repressive societies oh, yeah. in the history of, of human nature. So they don't call I, it the dark age for nothing. Yeah. I don't want to sit there and argue that one way is better than another, but I can say that when we look at Gilead, what do we see in this world of the Handmaid's Tale? Great anxiety, natural forces perceived <clears throat> to be beyond the thought and the control of individuals, the inability to explain the natural phenomenon, even though there are actual structures to say, hey, this is due to pollution, the anxiety yeah. at the fear created by mass infertility, the idea of actual judgment causes a, a reversal back to a more angry version, a more more uncomfortable relationship with a deity wrought to punish. Yes. Um, and this is um, very similar to the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages. Oh, my God. In which, you know, the mass amount of death that everyone saw, the most common explanation for it 
wasn't medical. It wasn't about disease. It wasn't about germs. It was about God being angry at the sin of the Europeans. And it was understood. And out of that came a lot of extremism, came a lot of, you know, uh, you know, self-mutilation, a lot of scapegoating and blaming those that aren't like you, like European Jews suffered mass persecutions during the bubonic plague where before, previous they were living relatively in codependence and peacefulness. Yeah. And so the Gilead drama to me is a familiar one in that when we are the most tested and when we are the most insecure and when we are the most as a, as a people, you know, unsure of the outcomes, why they're happening and we feel we're being punished. We typically go to it's because we've upset the father. Yeah. We're vulnerable to that side. Uh, that's interesting. That's exactly the question that I was going to bring up is, is why in, you know, in the most, uh, progressive and the most, uh, technologically forward thinking time we have ever lived in, uh, why would we revert or regress back to a society that, that puts its own, um, its own power in the hands of someone else that takes its, its own power and throws it back at this abstract idea of God. And I think you're very right about those anxieties about the natural world and pollution and infertility and things that feel like plagues wrought upon humanity. But I think there's one other facet to that, which is that the people in power, that is to say the people with the most privilege, those being like elite, rich, white people, of course, in, uh, in the U.S., uh, have started to see decisions by other people being made on a mass scale that feels out of their control. So I think what I'm saying here is that power has been shifted to marginalized people. Uh, those who haven't had a voice in the past have been able to speak up. Like gay people are getting jobs at big universities. I'm sorry, are you, are you talking about in the show, in reality? I'm talking about in the show, okay. but I think it, it's allegorical for where we are today. But I think the part of that anxiety is about we don't have the power anymore and you know, laws are being made that don't protect our fundamental values and people who didn't used to have the microphone are starting to get the microphone. So I think there's an anxiety that's uh, not just part of cosmic or natural phenomenon, but is part of watching the tides turn uh, in terms of, of who is inheriting the earth. You think the show, yeah, I don't know, the, the show, you think it focuses on that? I think it's, I, I think it's starting mm. to focus on that more, especially with episode two of season two, which we mentioned as the, um, as they, the one where... They kill the college professor because one, he's gay. Yeah, it's the right. one where we really dig into of Glenn um, or Emily's past and see what's been happening, not just to women, but to uh, people who are queer or who are not identifying as the perfect uh, image of straight uh, idealism. Well, you know, I think prejudice is a problem that, you know, America is currently dealing with. And I think it's exacerbated. Thank you. With the thought that the world's actually ending because people can't have kids. Right. Right. I think that's the, the catalyst that brings all of the, the pre-Gilead tension to Gilead is the idea that our fundamental problem is lack of fertility. Um, lack of fertility is linked to our freedom and our individualness. Hence, we have to strip that all away, 
force everyone into a theocracy, force it back to a paternalistic um, and um, patriarchal society in which men can control everything. And only by doing that can we actually, you know, bear children. In, in other words, I think it's the recognition of in this show that Jesus and his teachings didn't save them. God still hates mankind. Right. And if God still hates mankind, um, even though God gave his only one son and we aren't saved because of it, we have to go to some pretty extreme, dark, medieval measures. And I think it explains the name of the Republic of Gilead. Uh, There are references to Gilead in the Bible as both the name of a person or the name of a geographic place in the Holy Land, but most commonly it's associated with the term a, a balm in Gilead, um, which refers to a like sacred salve that originates from this place in the Holy Land that will heal the Israelites, that will heal all people. And Gilead thinks it is the cure for a worldwide plague. Uh, as twisted as its methods may be, it truly believes that it is the answer to something that has been wrought upon humankind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, But I want to bring this back a little bit to June. I want to understand why why we're we're seeing this now, why she is still putting her faith in something that is in any way associated with what Gilead is based upon. Um, And I I have to extrapolate a little bit because, uh, like I said, I've been really interested in the fact that they're doing a season two – after season one ended right where the book ends. So they have this whole opportunity to grow the world into different directions and show us different facets to Gilead and different facets to the characters. So I'm super interested in where the show is going and what is coming next. And I have to think, please pardon my predictions a little bit, but I have to think that because the show is giving June the opportunity to pray to Jesus uh, that somewhere that we're going has to do with forgiveness and redemption and salvation. I think that over the past season and a half, June has been confronted with not only her own plight, but the plights of others. And I think that uh, by reading the letters of other handmaids in captivity, by seeing the pictures of those who were slaughtered at the Boston Globe by dropping the stone and saying, I'm sorry, Aunt Lydia, and refusing to uh, stone her friend Janine, she is starting to feel herself a part of something bigger than just her own story and her own struggle. So I do believe that this character in June is on her way to becoming a savior of sorts. Uh, And I I wonder if introducing Jesus as a part of her... um, a part of her narrative is a way to signify that to us. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I, I am not really typically good at reading the clues of foreshadowing in a, you know, piece of media I'm highly engaged in, um, in particular the first time around, because I usually get pretty much wrapped up in the here and now. Sure. And then going backwards, I think it's fun to find the clues that lead you there. Um, you know, I can say that where this last episode led off with June is she's totally broken. It's you know, devastating. Yeah, she's just completely and totally broken, and it's just playing by all the Gilead rules, um, and 
just has been destroyed psychologically, spiritually. She is a shell and there is no rebellion to her. So where she's at now, if that is an indication of where it's going, I feel like who knows? I mean, who knows where this narrative is going to end off? Absolutely. I don't think it's going to end in a happy place, but neither did the story for Jesus. So you might be right. Right. Well, and of course, so we're recording this um, just after episode four of season two dropped. So this is, of course, the episode where June gets, um, you know, taken from the plane and sent back to the Waterford household. And she has to cross that threshold again and go back to being their handmaid and live out her pregnancy and give birth to a child that she will never be able to be a mother to. Um, and it's it's devastating to see what happens to her because she is gaslit so hard by Aunt Lydia and she is uh, confronted with the fact that the uh, the people she begged to smuggle her and and you know save her and hold her in their safe house uh, were torn apart, that the man was hanged and the wife was sold into uh, handmaidom and the boy will never see his parents again. Um, and it's devastating to be confronted with that responsibility because although the actual blame is on Gilead for doing this unto her, uh, June feels the responsibility for those lives being torn apart or lost. And so... Well, there's a difference between who's responsible and, um, you know, like, because she didn't hang anyone, but of course, her yeah. choices are part of the causal link that destroyed this family whose only crime was trying to help her. Absolutely. And that guilt is real. That guilt is real. And this is all stemming from what June perceives to be her greatest character flaw. And she's reflecting on this that entire episode, that her greatest character flaw is that she is selfish. She's made the selfish choice in her life until now. She stole another man's, uh, another woman's husband. Uh, you know, she... Uh, you know, a couple episodes ago, medicated her daughter to get around the school's uh, fever policies so that she could go to work and make money. And as a handmaid, she escaped on her own and left her other handmaid friends behind and decided she was going to leave her daughter behind to look out for herself. And that led to her being caught. That led to people being killed in her name. And that guilt, that confrontation of her own selfishness, whether it's it's real or true character flaw or whether it is something that is being uh, burned into her as though it's a, um, you know, an, an incurable thing is what has broken her down to her uh, non-autonomous self that she is now. I guess, uh, you know, I, I see where you're coming and you're making pretty good arguments, but my counter to all of that is one, like about the medicating the child, I didn't feel well. My mom gave me Tylenol and sent me to school. Oh, no, yeah. Right? That's not selfishness. That's just a mom being a mom. Of course. To me, that highlighted about how sick this society was getting in its, like, child worship. I Yeah, you no, know? I, I completely agree. I just throw that out there because I think it's something that is going to compound in her as she is is going yeah, over I, the choices I, that she's made. And I think, yeah, I get it. But um, you can't gloss over Aunt Lydia's severe psychological manipulation and her learning like the character aunt Lydia's craft at certain points you feel that, you know, she really hates what she's doing with the handmaids 
I feel like we've passed a gulf where she has learned how to manipulate so well and torture so well that whether or not she feels guilty about it, like the the psychological abuse that she rots onto June in that episode is just fucking disgusting. Oh, yeah. And that's what, to me, breaks her, not a reckoning on her selfishness. You know, if anything, I think, I feel the opposite. I feel like June... June has done her best to be as unselfish as she can be, but when faced between self-preservation and death, she chooses self-preservation to me isn't really selfishness, you know? Right. No, I, I, I do agree. And I feel very, very little sympathy for Aunt Lydia, even though they do try to keep showing us her crying in, in corners. I'm like, girl, you, you betrayed every other woman and you're doing horrible things. But she is classic, like, cult middle management, right? She's just a, a terrible, terrible abuser who is programming people to believe that they are guilty for things that they are not guilty of. But I think the I think the, the sort of capstone on that thought that I was introducing about June's own guilt is that her confrontation of that and her acceptance and transformation and transcendence of that, which I, I predict or hope comes in the future is what is going to allow her to become bigger than she is, is going to allow her to become someone who is not just trying to escape Gilead is going to make her into the person who helps others escape Gilead. At least that is what I hope and pray for. Anyway, changing gears. One of the things that I really enjoy tremendously about uh, The Handmaid's Tale and where I think it stands apart from a lot of other fantastic television that we see happening right now is that I feel like there's an argument to be made that The Handmaid's Tale is also the repudiation of the anti-hero obsession that we have in television. Mm. The idea that in order to have a show to be interesting, you need a man who is, you know, bordering on psychopathy an antisocial personality disorder, tweetering between hero and just pure villain. And as much as I have enjoyed those narratives, thinking of The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, The Wire. Mad Men, yeah. Mad Men, almost every character in Game of Thrones, except for, you know, uh, Jon Snow. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like... And so, except for him, every other character for the most part. And Ned Stark. Yeah, and Ned Stark. But yeah, there are a few in Game of Thrones. But most of the main characters are bordering on some extreme level of like delight over violence, like psychopaths, antisocial personality disorder. And, and a lot of those characters become heroes. You know, what I like about The Handmaid's Tale is that the hero June is really a hero worth rooting for. Yeah. It's really a hero that we want to see succeed because of the hero's inner goodness. And even though like you call it the selfishness, the guilt, whatever that is, you know, there's a kernel of just nobility and intelligence and grace and beauty in this character that you want to see preserved. I think the last episode, what was so hard is that we saw a piece of that potentially gets snuffed out. Yeah. And we, we even saw a, a literal 
um, a literal thing we never, ever wanted to see because in season one we were introduced to the Latin phrase no lite te bastardas carborundorum, which was carved onto the inside of the wardrobe that she used to lie in. And that was a comfort for her because it literally meant don't let the bastards grind you down. And that was something that she lived by. And then when we see her return to that home and lie in that wardrobe and look for that comfort, that Latin has been ground off of the inside of the wardrobe. It has been sanded off so that she can no longer find that comfort. And so I, I want more than anything for her to cling to or to rediscover some fire inside herself that says no lite te bastardes carborundorum, that says don't let the bastards grind you down, that says I can rebel and I can save myself and save others. And, you know, we've gotten a hint that maybe she'll be able to find that in her God, in her private God, but I think she'll have to find that inside herself. Yeah, and, I mean, there's no saying that she will. Right. You know, where I, we are now. Yeah, where the, the show is now, I have no way to predict where it's going. I have no prediction. I'm trying to read the foreshadows and the tea leaves. I'm just on the ride, you know? Right, and we're, yeah, we're all on the ride. A lot of what I'm saying in terms of prediction is 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 me hoping beyond hope that this character can transcend and rise above her circumstances because uh, I feel so connected to her, and I think a lot of us do feel so connected to her. Um, and would be devastated if she was really ground down by those bastards. Okay, well, any final thoughts? Yeah, I want to go back to the name of Gilead one more time, um, just to illustrate this divide between a world that is built on Old Testament values and a, a hero who is built on New Testament values. Um, that phrase, there is a balm in Gilead, also comes to us from an African-American spiritual, a song that you might hear sung in a church choir, um, that is referencing, of course, that uh, geographical location that's listed in the Old Testament. But really, the song, more than anything, is about salvation through Christ. It's about redemption through your Savior. Uh, and so there's this really interesting place where those two worlds, those two dichotomous books live side by side, even though they kind of couldn't be more different. Uh, and I think, I, I think what what June represents is another balm in Gilead. While Gilead believes it is the cure to this plague, June is the cure to Gilead. I hope, uh, you know, in finding grace, in finding redemption through whatever she has driving her to the end, she's going to be that balm. Yeah. Um... In uh, my final thought here, in the 6th century BCE, before the Common Era, in the area we now call the Middle East, which is then the ancient Near East, a, uh, a man named Cyrus of Persia created an entire empire, one of the largest empires ever formed in the ancient world, and it stands the test today. And uh, he demanded all his subjects worship him as a god. As was commonplace for ancient Near East emperors and kings to be worshipped as God kings. There is a sect of people living in a place that we now call Israel who said, we have a contract with one God and we can't worship you as one. And he said, okay, it's not a big deal. I just need to know exactly what you believe so I can levy your taxes and tax you appropriately. 
This is true. Look it up. Historical record to the best that we can understand any history of the ancient world. And out of that came the Torah or what we now call the Old Testament. And that's when we have the first written down version of the ancient Hebrew. Um, Now, that could be some argument. Maybe it was written down before. Maybe it wasn't. But that version um, written in ancient Hebrew to go to Cyrus so that it could be read so that he could understand what they believed so he could tax them for not worshiping him became one of the cornerstones of some of the world's largest and most powerful religions. And one phrase in that becomes the basis of a military autocracy and theocracy in Gilead. And my point in highlighting all of this as my final thought is what you write down is important and it's going to reverberate. And who knows how long and how far that reverberation can be. Um, There's plenty of examples of this in history. You know, when, you know, Thomas Jefferson wrote down the words, all men are created equal. He meant literally all men are created equal. But that writing that down turned into all humans are created equal and changed the way that Americans lived. So remember this in an era and time where words become a common commodity, commodity, pardon me, in the attention economy. My final thought is what's written down is important. Why it was written down and understanding how it was written down is important. And we got to think critically through all of this stuff. And even if it's a tweet, remember that tweet's going to be there long after you're gone. Because when all the context is stripped away, when a flood comes and carries it, all we're left with are the words of powerful people who had the means to let those words continue to reverberate through time. So choose your words. Words matter. Absolutely. Because without those scriptural precedents in the, what, you know, in the Old Testament, there would be no handmaids. Yep. And hence there'd be no handmaid's tale. Anyway, on that happy note, <laughs> until next time, guys, be kind. Blessed be the fruit. <laughs>